0: And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. If instead of being in Roswell, New Mexico, you are currently in a church somewhere in Russia, or the Middle East, or Greece or any other part of the Eastern world, you most likely would have recited the Nicene Creed today, as we did. But this portion of the Creed would have been just a little bit different when you got there. The Eastern churches have a different version of the Nicene Creed. And the primary, and basically the only difference, is in what we just confessed that has become to be known as the Filioque Clause. Now you're probably thinking, what in the world is that? The word Filioque is a Latin word that means, and the Son. So it's one word in Latin, but it has to be translated into three words in English, so it becomes a clause in English. But filioque simply means, and the Son. And we just confirmed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, filioque, and the Son. But the original creed did not include a filioque clause. The original creed just stopped that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, Until at a later date, this one single Latin word was added to the Creed because it began to be added in so many local Latin councils that were reciting the Creed. And that one Latin word ended up becoming one of the primary issues that caused what has been seen as the greatest and most significant split in the Christian church in all of human history up to this point. This split was between the Eastern Greek-speaking Christians and the Western Latin-speaking Christians. So there became essentially a Latin Christian church and an Eastern a Greek Christian church. And this split was so monumental that historians today refer to it as the Great Schism. The Great Schism. It's hard to really identify when the schism began, but there's a unanimous opinion that we can identify it in 1054 A.D., in 1054 AD, we have the Great Schism. But everybody recognizes that the debates in the schism were being debated for hundreds of years before the, the schism. And it was more than one thing. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the things that they debated are things that you and I today would most likely consider to be tr- pretty trivial, right? So, a big difference, for example, that they never found agreement on was the date of Easter. What day should we celebrate Easter on? In the Eastern churches, they celebrate Easter on a different day than we do here in America. Uh, Interestingly enough, one of the debates was over whether pastors should have beards. Uh, If you look through your history books and see pictures, you'll find that most Roman Catholic clergy are clean-shaven. And if you ever see an Eastern Orthodox priest, he's been growing a beard out his entire life. There was a huge debate over whether it was appropriate for clergy to be clean shaven or to have beards. Another really, really big debate was whether in the supper we should use leavened or unleavened bread. Uh, The eastern churches typically use unleavened bread as the western churches typically use leavened bread. So these are things that I think most of us would probably agree, I don't know if we needed to, to part ways over that. But there were some issues that I think, there's no doubt there was just no common ground. For example, one of those significant issues was what we refer to as the papacy. In the Western Latin churches, there began this tradition that grew and grew over time, that we've got all these bishops over all these regions, but the bishop in Rome, he has authority over all of them. The bishop in Rome, he is the supreme bishop with authority over all the other bishops. He is the leader of the entire world, in fact, and we refer to the bishop of Rome today as the pope. So this idea that the Pope has a universal jurisdiction over the entire Christian church, it rose up and the Eastern churches rejected that. The Eastern churches have never believed in the papacy. And you can understand that that would be pretty controversial. But you could argue that perhaps the most contentious debate, the biggest cause of, of the split was over the filioque. It was over whether or not we should force each other to confess that the Holy Spirit proceeds not just from the Father, but that he also proceeds from the Son. The West affirms that, but the East denies that. And so we are going to look at those things today. But before we do that, I want to clarify. Um, today is going to be one of those really, really deep dives, and it's going to be pretty confusing. And oftentimes when we get confused, we get frustrated. So there's a, there's a chance that we come to worship to be encouraged. I'm trying not trying to intentionally frustrate you, but... I hope we can fight those feelings. And here's how I think we can fight them. I I, I reminded you when we very first started our lesson on the creed that there are some aspects of the creed that are pretty simple, easy to get. And there are some that are really, really deep dives. And today is one of those deep dives. But I want to comfort you with a few things. The first one is I hope you don't think that I'm even pretending to be an expert on the things we're talking about today. This is deep waters, very, very difficult territory. I am a novice as well. So I want you to see all of us as learners during this time. I know just enough that I can communicate the basics, but I am still on a journey exploring this as well. So I hope I'm not talking down at you. We are, we are learners together. And another thing I want to encourage you by is sometimes we just have to hear things multiple times over and over again before they finally click. So it's helpful to hear something even if you don't grasp it right away. Even if you don't understand it right away. Even if you have further questions. It's good to hear these things, to ponder them and meditate upon them multiple times. And in order to do that, you have to start somewhere. right? You have to hear it at least once. So this might be the first time you've ever heard something like this before. And that's okay. right? It's okay. But we are going to begin. And I think we should begin with the Apostle John. So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 16, please. John chapter 16. We're going to read the first 15 verses together. So when you found John 16, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Thus saith the Lord, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Jesus knows that he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And so he's beginning to prepare his disciples for his departure. And he knows how difficult their ministries are going to be once he leaves. Jesus is well aware of what the world does to people who preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so rather than discourage them with all of this persecution and suffering and death coming their way, he wants to encourage them. He wants to give them something encouraging in light of that. And the disciples, even before the suffering has begun, they're already now suffering because the news that Jesus is going to go away has brought sorrow in their hearts. And I think we can relate to that. I mean, think about it. These men have become completely dependent upon their rabbi for everything they know and do. They cannot imagine doing ministry without their Lord. Who's going to teach us? Who's going to comfort us? Who's going to help us? We cannot do this by ourselves. And Jesus agrees with them. You can't do it by yourself. And so he encourages them that even though I am leaving, you will not be without a comforter. You will not be without a teacher. You will not be without a helper. Because when I leave and here's his encouragement, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is their encouragement. The Holy Spirit is the greatest possible encouragement he could have provided. The Spirit will be their helper. The Spirit will be their teacher. The Spirit will be their comforter. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, It is to your advantage that I go. Think about that. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Christian ministry is better without me. Isn't that total blasphemy? Like, how could we possibly believe that Jesus would actually say, No, 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 trust me. You don't want the Lord of glory here. It's like, no, we do. Well, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus trying to tell us that the Holy Spirit is a better person of the Godhead than him? He's just better at his work. He's more holy. He's smarter. He's bigger. No, Jesus is not speaking according to his divine nature in that text. He's speaking according to his human nature in that text. And according to his human nature, he has limitations because we as human beings have limitations. So according to his human nature, Jesus's ministry, even though it's 100% effectual, is limited. Here's what I mean by that. Paul goes off to Antioch, Peter stays in Jerusalem, and they both need help. Can Jesus help them both? No. He can be in Antioch, he can be in Jerusalem, he can't be in both. Jesus' ministry is limited by his humanity. But guess what? The Holy Spirit has not taken on an incarnate form. The Holy Spirit does not have a humanity, so he is unlimited. The Spirit can be in Antioch and Jerusalem at the same time. The Spirit can be with us everywhere we go. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit has an unlimited ministry and He will come and fulfill my ministry. And that's to your advantage. So you'll never be without God now. God will always be with you because the Spirit will come. And and this just is a quick side note. This should be an encouraging reminder to us of just how good we have it in 21st century Christianity. I know every one of us, you know, there's always these different TV shows that come out about Jesus and storybooks come out about Jesus. And I know we all have that desire of like, man, what would it have been like to live in the first century and to to walk with Jesus, to see him, to touch him, to eat him. And I don't I don't deny, of course, that would be amazing. But Jesus is trying to tell us something here. You have it better than that. Currently, where you sit, you have it better not better by any definition of the word better, but there is a way to understand Christian ministry is better now. It is to our advantage that he has gone, for now he can send the comforter. He can send the helper. And so Jesus, really what he does here is he begins and he introduces what is almost for the first time a, a clear teaching on the Holy Spirit. He, he, he made a vague reference to the Spirit in John 3, and then another one in John 5, and then a deeper one in John 15. But really, he's really starting to hit the disciples hard now with the third person of the Trinity. And he, he tells them a few things that Jesus' primary emphasis on what the Holy Spirit will do for them. What is the advantage of the Spirit? How is He going to help our ministry? So let's just look briefly. This isn't like the sermon notes. But I want us to see, what is the Holy Spirit going to do for the apostles? Look at verses 7 through 12. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the first thing that Jesus says the Spirit is going to do for the apostles' ministry... I'm not going to break down all of those three things in a lot of detail, but we can summarize it: is he's he is going to convict the world of their sin. He's going to convict them of their sin, of their, their, their deserving of judgment, of their lack of righteousness. He's going to convict the world of their sin. And this is massively important. Because, you see, the gospel cannot be effectual unless the person hearing it becomes convinced that they need it. You can preach the gospel all you want, all day long, but as long as the person hearing it thinks he's righteous, the gospel is not good news to him. So the Holy Spirit, his ability, his work to to work on the hearts of men and convict them of their sin, to bring men to that position where, yes, I need a savior who can save me. And then here comes the gospel to the rescue. This is a crucial mandatory part of evangelism. Without the spirit convicting the world of the sin, we would just be preaching the gospel against, just like speaking to the wall. He gives entire, the ability for the mission to actually be completed because he convicts the world of their sin. But that's not the only thing Jesus promises him that he'll do. He'll not only do that with the hearer, but he's going to do something for them. And he said, he will lead you into all truth. This is a verse that is oftentimes taken out of context and applied to you and me or applied to the Christian church. You know, I I hear all the time people say things like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but the Spirit will lead me into all truth. I I hate to break it to you, but you actually don't know all truth. The Spirit hasn't done that for you. He's not promised to do that for you. This is a unique promise to the apostles. What he's saying is, I'm going to make you infallible. All the truth, all the things that I have yet to even teach you, all the things that I would want to teach you, but I know you can't bear it now, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into those things. This is why when we read our New Testaments, like John, why is it trustworthy? Why should you believe this book that I just read to you? Because the Spirit led this man into all truth. The Spirit inspired this man with everything that Christ said. He told him of the things to come. And this is consistent with what Jesus promised to them earlier in John 14, saying these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So notice what the Spirit's doing. Everything that Jesus said during his earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit is bringing that to the remembrance of the apostles' minds. So John can write an epistle 20, 30 years after walking with Jesus and we still believe it's reliable. Did he forget something in 20 years? The natural man would have, but not John. Because the Holy Spirit was given to him by the Father, by Christ, to bring to remembrance all that Christ said. The apostles knew everything he said, and they even knew some of the things he didn't say, because the Spirit was leading them into all truth, both old and new. The Spirit, in other words, was inspiring their message, making them prophets, making them apostles of Jesus Christ giving them the words to say, convicting the listeners of their message. These are just two of many important things that the Holy Spirit does, not just for the apostles, but in in other derivative ways of us too. Which is why we have to continue to confess that the mission of God on earth is a total and abject waste of time, if not for God's Holy Spirit. (laughs) However, in light of, of what we're learning in the creed, we're not actually focusing today on what the Holy Spirit does. We're focusing on who he is. And I submit to you, I stand on the history of the Christian church. So if you think, if you disagree with me today, that's okay. But just know I'm in good company. That on the surface of this text, we see so much about what the spirit does. But underneath this text, latent in this text is actually an amazingly clear revelation about who he is. We learn not just about what He does, but who He is. We learn specifically not just that He is God, but we also in this text primarily learn how He is God. And so those are the two things I want us to just address. That the Holy Spirit is God, but then I really want us to take this text and see how the Holy Spirit is God. Let me just begin just briefly with the fact that He is God. This is important because this is the part of the creed that everybody agrees on. East, west, there's still a lot of agreement on this portion of the creed. Overwhelming agreement. Basically, everyone agrees that what we're trying to see in the creed today is that the Holy Spirit is God. The way the creed says that to you is by saying that with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. That's the creed's way of saying he's God. Why? Because the Bible is very clear, you are to worship no one but God. The Father is God, so you should worship Him. The Son is God, you should worship Him. The Spirit, you should also worship Him. What's the conclusion there? He's also God. It would be utter blasphemy to worship the Spirit, were He not. The Spirit, in other words, according to the Creed, shares the same deity as the Father and the Son, which is why we treat Him the same way we would treat the Father and the Son. All three of them are divine persons who fully share this divine nature. There is one God, three persons, and we worship the three as one. So like I said last week, the Spirit is not a force. He's not an angel. He is a divine person. He's not just another name for the Father. He is distinct from the Father. He is a divine person, but we worship Him the same way we worship the Father. And the Creed says this because this is the biblical picture of Him. Now, I openly grant, everyone openly grants, that the Bible is much more clear on the deity of the Son than it is on the deity of the Spirit. There's no doubt about that. But that's not an admission that the Bible isn't clear about the deity of the Spirit. That's the claim that's made. Yeah, Jesus is clearly God about in the scripture, but I don't know about the Spirit. No, the Spirit is clearly God in scripture. We already saw a few reasons last week. If you recall, we talked about how the Spirit performs works of salvation. Yet all throughout the Old Testament we told there is only one savior. There's only one savior and he is God. So if the Spirit is your savior, what does that make him? It makes him God. He performs miraculous feats of salvation that no creature can perform. We also learned last week that the Apostle Paul called him Lord. The Holy Spirit is the Lord, and that's a divine title. You don't refer to a creature as the Lord. He is the Lord, so he is God. We also see additionally, um, we don't have time to break down the poetry of this, but Christian scholars have always seen in Genesis 1-2 the Spirit being attributed to the work of creation. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Scholars have said that this is a poetic way of attributing to him the work of creation here. In other words, according to Genesis, the Holy Spirit is the eternal creator. You can't say that of a creature. We also see proof in our baptism formula. We are all supposed to be baptized according to Jesus in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you think Jesus would dare put a non-divine person in the baptism formula with the other divine persons? Are we baptized in the name of two divine persons and a creature? Two divine persons and a force? Two divine persons and an angel? No. When, when the Spirit's name shows up in the baptism formula, that's Jesus' way of saying these persons are equal. We are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is a proof there of His divinity. But while most of these are inferential, we actually have at least one text that directly calls him God. It comes to us famously from the Apostle Peter in Acts 5, when he rebuked Ananias and Sapphira for lying about their offerings and holding something back. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And if someone says, well, what's the big deal about that? Why is it such a big deal to lie to the Holy Spirit? Because when you do that, you're lying to God. You're not lying to a man. You're not lying to an angel. You're not lying to a force. You're lying to God. So the Holy Spirit, I hope you believe and know, the Holy Spirit is God. But what John 16 gives us a glimpse of is not just that He is God, but more specifically, how He is God. I know that sounds like a weird question to ask, how is God God? But that actually is a good question. And our creed is taking that up. The Nicene Creed takes that up here, and it defines His deity primarily by the fact that He proceeds from the Father. He is God because he proceeds from the Father. Now you might say, that is just fancy, philosophical, technical jargon. To which I say, do you know it's not? It's a Bible verse. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What the Creed is showing us by taking this Bible verse is that the Holy Spirit is very much like the Son. If you remember way back when we talked about in the earlier part of the creed how the Son is begotten of God, that's a form of procession. The Son of God is called the Son of God because His divinity, His essence, comes from the Father. He proceeds from the Father. So the Father, we talked about, communicates His essence to the second person so that the second person shares fully in the divine nature. And what John, what Jesus is saying in John is that the Holy Spirit, like the Son, also proceeds from the Father. He too receives a communication of the Father's essence so that he shares the fullness of who and what the Father is. He comes, and that's what it means to proceed, right? Like if I were to say, hey, I'm, I've heard to tell my parents in Denver, I'm coming to visit you, I'm proceeding from Roswell. It means I started in Roswell and I came from there. To, to go forth from is procession. And we are being told that the Spirit comes forth from the Father, He proceeds from the Father, and the Son also proceeds from the Father. And this is why the Father communicates His essence to them, so that all three persons share in the Father's essence, which is God. They all share the fullness of deity because of their divine origins, because they come from the Father. But we have to clarify this just like we had to clarify eternal generation. Just like eternal generation, this procession of the Spirit is an eternal procession. It didn't happen in time, so it's not as if the Spirit one time didn't exist, and then the Father proceeded Him, brought Him forth, and He created Him. That He never began to receive His divine nature; He just always has been receiving His divine nature. And so, we really, what we want to see, this is not so much as something that God does—the procession, the generation—it's something that God is. In other words, the way theologians talk about this in a fancy way is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father by nature and not by grace. Here's what we mean by that. You don't want to think of the eternal generation of the Son or the procession of the Spirit as God seeing these two persons and going, you know what? I'm going to give you my deity. You're welcome. Here's my deity. That would be an act of grace, and then that would automatically subserviate them. But if they were subservient, then they wouldn't be equal, which means they don't actually have his eternal nature. So, yes, the Father communicates his essence to the Son and the Spirit. They proceed forth from him, but he didn't do this in time as an act of grace. It's nature. It's just what he is. It's just he has been eternally, forever, communicating his essence to the other two persons. And so this is just who he is. He is an eternally triune being, wherein the first person communicates his nature to the other persons, which means there is one divine nature. There's one will. There's one power. There's one goodness. There's one God. But that one divine nature, that Godhead, is fully shared and communicated among three, what the Nicene Fathers called hypostases, which we today call persons. So this did not happen in time. It's a natural description of how God has eternally always been. Another qualification we need to make is that this proceptor... Oh, I actually already made that one. I broke them up in my notes into two and I just crammed them together in the one. So the blessing of this then, this natural, like I said, it means that the spirit, again, is not subservient. The spirit has the full, equal, divine nature as the Father. So you should not think of the servant... The spirit does not submit to the Father. The Spirit does not obey or submit. The Spirit is not less than the Father beneath the Father. You should not think more highly of the Father than you do of the Spirit. As the creed says, you should worship them both the exact same way. Because they are completely equal because it's the exact same nature that has been communicated through procession. So all three persons of the Trinity are completely co-eternal and co-equal because there's one divine essence that's being shared. There is only one God. And that's the reason, as a side note, why it's good to ask the question, how is the Spirit God? Because if you think about it, this becomes kind of confusing. You open up your Bible, and all through the Old Testament, you were just drilled, hammered. There's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. And then you get to the New Testament, you see, oh, there's the Father, he's God. Oh, there's the Son, he's God. Oh, there's the Spirit, he's God. So it's a fair question to say, if there's only one God, how are they God? How is this possible? How can the Son and the Father and the Spirit be the three names though we are baptized into one name? Baptize them in the name, singular. So there's only one name you're baptized into and what is it? Three names. How do we make sense of this? Procession. Procession is how we make sense of this. That is how the Spirit is God. Now here's the the, the beauty. Everything I've said so far, you might say, this is crazy, I don't get it, that's fine, but just know Everything I've said so far is agreed upon by both the East and the West. And it's been agreed upon ever since Nicaea. So everything I've said has been classic Christian Trinity 101 for well over a thousand years. And even the Eastern churches agree with us on everything I've said. However, we have to get to our point of disagreement. Because we don't just affirm in the creed that the Spirit is God because He proceeds from the Father. We also affirm in the West that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. (laughs) And that's where we begin to disagree. So let's let's answer this question. Why do we as Protestants, and we we share this belief with Roman Catholics, why do we continue to affirm the filioque when the Greeks don't? What are our reasons? Because I feel like if you're going to add something to the creed, you better have good reasons for it. What was the, the reasons of the West to add this phrase that the Spirit does not just proceed from the Father, but also from the Son? That he receives his nature not from the Father alone, but from the Son. I want to spend the rest of our time, and I promise it won't be nearly as long as where we've already gone, defending this, defending the filioque, right? Does the Spirit proceed from the Father alone, or does he proceed from the Father and from the Son? And I want to give you three reasons why it was probably a proper thing to add this in the creed. The first reason is because the Son sends the Spirit. Reason number one is because the Son sends the Spirit. Read verse 7 with me. Just a quick side note, if you're a visitor with us, this is a topical sermon series we're doing. Normally we don't do topical, so I promise in my normal preaching, it does not take me as long as it just did to get to the text. I want to promise you that. This is, this is a unique time. But we're back in our text now. Verse 7. <laughs> Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so here Christ tells us that the reason the Spirit came is because just like Jesus himself, he was sent. Jesus says all throughout the Gospel of John that I came because my Father sent me. I came to do my Father's will. Jesus did not come on his own initiative. Metaphorically speaking, the Father sent him. And what's always been said about Jesus and the Father, Jesus now says about him and the Spirit. The Father sends me... And I send the Spirit. I am the one who sent him to you. What Jesus is introducing to them is what we call the Trinitarian missions. And the missions of the Trinity, what we mean by that is we're... That's just when you look at the the roles of the person in salvation. What's their individual mission in my salvation? But here's why the missions are so important. Because Christians have always affirmed, since Nicaea and even before that, that the missions of the person are meant to reflect something about the nature of the persons. They're not just telling us what they do. It's a a little glimpse. It's a little window into who they are. Or maybe a better way to say it as what they are. Right? So how can we say the spirit is eternal and equal with God, yet he's being sent? Isn't Isn't that obedience? Isn't that submission? Well, no, that's because it's a metaphorical expression to tell us something about the Godhead. And like the son, it teaches us what we call the order of the Trinity. So have you ever, have you ever asked yourself the question, why did Jesus become incarnate, not the father? Why did the Holy Spirit not take on flesh? Jesus took on flesh to reveal something to us about the Trinity. Sons don't send fathers fathers send sons. Jesus had to be incarnate. And that tells us something about his origin with the Father. And so in the same way that we learned something about the Trinity by seeing that Jesus became incarnate, that the Father sent the Son, we're now learning something about the Trinity when Jesus says, and I send the Spirit. So if the sending implies a coming forth from, and Jesus sends the Spirit, what's equally implied? A coming forth from. The mission is teaching us something about the nature. The Son is from the Father because the Father sends the Son. And the Spirit is from the Father and the Son because we see in Scripture both of them send Him. And by the way, what's interesting is this is never reversed. You will never find a Bible verse that says the Spirit sent the Son. You will never find a Bible verse that says the, the Son sent the Father. That's the language is always the Father sends the Son and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And what Christians have always said that tells us something about who they are. They're not interchangeable, so it tells us something about who they are. The Spirit comes forth from the Father and from the Son because He is sent by both. That's argument number one. Argument number two is that the Spirit receives His knowledge from the Son. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here Jesus tells the disciples that when the Spirit infallibly fills their mind with divine truth, with Christian wisdom, whose wisdom is the Spirit giving them? And he's saying it's not his own. It's my wisdom. He heard this, metaphorically speaking. He heard it. He learned it from me. And now he's giving it to you. And then Jesus even takes us a step back and say, where did I, metaphorically speaking, learn it from? The Father. All that the Father has is mine. And all that is mine is the Spirit's. And here's the point that Christians have always understood. If there's only one God, that means there's only one wisdom in God. There's only one mind in God. If you have three minds, you've got three beings. There's one will, one wisdom, one goodness. So there is only one wisdom in God, yet the Son is saying, I received that wisdom from God, and now the Spirit receives it from me. So he is saying the wisdom is communicated from the Father to the Son to the Spirit, and you can't separate the wisdom from the mind, and you can't separate the mind from the being. So the being must be then communicated from the Father to the Son, and then from the Son to the Spirit. If the Spirit is receiving the wisdom of God, He is receiving God from God. Jesus is actually telling us that the Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son, which is why everything the Spirit has came to Him from the Father and from the Son. Everything the Father is has been given to the Son and now everything that they both are the Son has given to the Spirit. This is why we added the filioque. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And my last point, this will probably be the easiest one for us to wrap our minds around. All of that we've learned from John 16 today, this is perfectly consistent with why the scriptures throughout the Bible will refer to the Holy Spirit as with two titles. Most often he is called the Spirit of God. And that makes sense because who does he come from? Who does he proceed forth from? From God. He's from God. He's of God. So that makes sense. He is the spirit of God. But guess who he also proceeds? Guess what the scriptures also call him? The spirit of Christ. We see a beautiful example of this in Romans chapter 8. Where Paul says, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So the spirit must be of God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit, and then he immediately switches. Who is also the Spirit of God? The Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We see Paul say something similar in Galatians 4. Because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit of his son into your hearts crying abba father and in philippians for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance none of this makes sense if the spirit is only of god and he's not also of the son we could not call him the spirit of christ if he's not of christ but he is these titles teach us about his nature and again they're not frivolous they're not frivolous Because they're never exchanged. These are not interchangeable titles. Jesus is never called the son of the spirit. He's not the spirit's son. He's never called that. Because he doesn't proceed forth from the spirit. The spirit proceeds forth from the father and the son. This is also, this gets us into another important thing. And I promise we're wrapping up here. But just to theologically sort of help uh, trim up the edges. The the fact that the spirit proceeds from the son, it it helps answer a couple really important questions. The first one being... Why do we refer to Jesus as the only Son of God if, in fact, two divine persons proceed from God? Why does the Bible call Jesus the only begotten Son, the only Son of the Father, when the Spirit also proceeds from the Father? So doesn't, doesn't God have twins? Don't, doesn't He have two sons? No. The fact that the Bible only refers to the second person as Son... And it it says he's the only son. The Spirit is not a son. That's telling us that their procession has to in some way be different. If it's the exact same procession, then they're both sons. So yet again, we see how titles in the Bible reveal something about the nature. We don't call the Spirit the son of the Father because he does not proceed from the Father alone. Only the Son proceeds from the Father alone. And this relates to another really important... So this this might be confusing, but it's very powerful. This is a very powerful argument. I hope it's fun. I hope you're having fun. (laughs) So here's another way we talk about... Here's an interesting question. If all three persons have the exact same divine nature, how do we tell them apart? They're exactly the same. How do we tell them apart? The historic Christian answer has always been one thing and one thing only. Their divine origins. The only difference between the first and the second person is that the first person is unbegotten and the second person is begotten. That's the only difference. And the only difference then, but, but here becomes the problem. If the, first, if the second person proceeds from the Father alone, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone, how do we tell the difference between them? You can't point to something in their nature, well, one is really smart and one's not. No, they have the exact same nature. You can't point to their divine origins because they both come from the Father. We would actually be making the Spirit and the Son synonyms. They're the same thing. You would not be able to tell them apart. The the way that the Nicene fathers would have argued this is they would have said there would then be no hypostatic difference. They would be the same person. Same nature, same procession, same person. So the fact that the Spirit comes from the Father and from the Son, it gives us a distinction so that we know the difference between the Son and the Father. What's the difference between the Son of God and the Spirit of God? And there's one answer to that. The the Son of God comes from the Father alone, and the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. That's the only difference. When you lose the filioque, you lose the ability to call the Spirit the Spirit of Christ, and you lose the ability to know the difference between the second and third person. Now, let's finish. The, the creed is, is beautiful. I know this is very complicated, but we can really simplify it quite well. I would argue that our creed makes my job easy because it, it gives me the message and it gives us our application. All right. So what's the message of the sermon today? What's the main idea and what's our application according to the creed? I would argue implicitly from John 16. It's very simple. The Holy Spirit is God. That's what I want you to learn today. If, if you leave here and someone asks, hey, what would you learn in church today? If you don't want to, you don't have to talk about procession and inspiration and eternal generation. You can just make it simple. The Holy Spirit is God. That's the message today. The Spirit is God. But what do you do with that? What do you do with that? How does that impact your life? How does that change your life? If the Holy Spirit is God, here's the application. Then worship and enjoy Him like God. The Holy Spirit, who is oftentimes dubbed the, the forgotten God the person of the Trinity who does his job in glorifying Christ so well, we oftentimes fail to even recognize him or talk about him or give credit to him. Maybe the best way we can apply this message today is to be more consciously and actively aware that everything we are and everything we're doing, it comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. He's everything. Let's enjoy him. Let's worship him. Let's pray to him. Let us treat him like God.